Have you ever wanted to be the first to know if aliens really exist? Well, with Nebula, you can be! Nebula is the streaming service that's home to its Probably Not Aliens, as well as our YouTube channels. And the best part? All of our content goes up early on Nebula. So when we break first contact with E.T., you'll be the first to find out. That's right, you'll be able to listen to the next episode of this show before anyone else. Plus, we post bonus content that you won't find any other place. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and be the first to know if this time it really is aliens. Tristan, you're going to talk to me about a TV show. I'm going to talk to you about the best TV show currently on television right now. I I would say, arguably, we talk about the best TV show currently on air every single week, which is Ancient Aliens. Oh, no. But this is a better one, is what you're saying? I have like five, like three of my top five TV shows have the same guy involved with it. I would almost say four because one, he wrote for a bunch. All right. Who is this guy? Have you ever heard of Ron D. Moore? Ron D. Moore. I don't think so in some ways he is like almost responsible for the serialization of television in like the 2000s okay so here's the things that he's he's known for one he was a huge contributor to star trek just huge. all right off to a good start uh, next generation in d space nine specifically the best ones the best ones the mo- ones he was most involved with though was uh d space nine where he was the supervising producer and a co-executive producer and was like on the production staff and so was like had a really big role in the structure of the show and gave it like its serialized character driven nature that basically made the show uh, uh-huh. one of the D space nine is the best TV show that has ever been made by human beings. It is the peak of okay. television that we have never gotten close to. And I promise one day I will watch it. Yeah. The next thing he then went on to do was the Battlestar Galactica reboot of the early two thousands, which was a bit of a theme here with this guy, a lot of sci-fi, a lot of space travel. Yeah. Ron D Moore then made outlander. I know outlander, right? Is that the one I know? Maybe. I don't know. Highlander. Was that that incredibly horny show that you got me to watch one time i believe so i don't know why i'm second guessing myself i've seen all of it i'm i'm pretty sure it's outland i just get confused because there's so many landers Uh out there Outlander, yeah, with the with the lady doctor who goes back in time. She's a surgeon. She's a surgeon who goes back in time somehow magically and has all this knowledge of first world war medicine and which is, you know, obviously not as advanced as today, but it is very advanced for a hundred years ago when she travels back in time. Which is odd because the first world war is a hundred years ago now. So, <laughs> Well, it is a hundred years ago now, but she goes back even further, a hundred more years back in time. Okay. And travels back to you know the into scotland and things like that and meets a sexy redhead named jamie and they have uh sex and it's good stuff i remember it being i remember uh trying to get into it and it was an extremely horny show oh yeah it's horny it it stopped being this is the thing we can't go down that's why it lost its track it stopped being horny (laughs) it stopped being horny and it started being like historical drama and intrigue which is like 
fine, but that's not why people watched it. I don't think. Okay. It's still going. It's still going. I'm still watching it. I don't know. Okay. Well, Rondi Moore's latest show is possibly, it is a mix of a bunch of things that are things that I have like been consistently disappointed with, uh, a genre that I've been consistently disappointed with in speculative fiction. And honestly, like a kind of a show that we need as a species right now. So his latest show, which just wrapped up its fourth season is called For All Mankind. I know of this one. I have not seen this one, but you're saying it is the best show airing right now. Yes, which uh, it's the best show airing on right now that no one's talking about. So obviously it's on Apple TV. It's on Apple TV, which means you get to watch it in those fancy new Apple Vision Pro goggles. $3,500. Watch a TV show. Watch a TV show while driving your car or riding an electric skateboard down middle of men. God, um, you know, there there was this like... Everyone's just... Hold on. Everyone's just doing that for content and clout. No one is actually doing that. Okay, but um, there was... No, Tristan, no one is actually doing it they're doing it so we talk about them which is what we're doing are you trying to will that into existence no i'm not trying to will it into existence i'm saying no one is actually doing the okay. things that we've seen them do with that. people are at home watching avatar way of the water that's all they're doing in it realistically okay, okay. just because like with people who really like apple they sometimes like to like make a really big deal of showing off that they have enough money for apple products and yeah. sometimes when apple products look stupid it means that they 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 make a really big deal of showing off that the stupid thing they have and yeah, the- they show it yeah for clout that's what i'm saying no one's actually going to like um, like there are so many clips i've seen of like people like going to like mcdonald's wearing it and like eating a burger wearing it it's like you're not no one is actually doing it though they're just doing it to make videos about them too, yeah it, but no one's actually doing it. what it does remind what that does remind me of is that this was maybe like 15 years ago do you remember google glass oh yeah so there was a guy who took his google glass into a mcdonald's where like the people were kind of uncomfortable because it looked like they were being filmed because they probably were mm-hmm. and so they asked yeah. him to leave and he basically pivoted this as like this is the first anti-cyborg discrimination uh <laughs> like hate crime that has ever happened uh-huh. and it's like yeah one of the funnier the people who were into google glass were a unique breed of human but okay for all mankind for all mankind so for all watch man- it on apple vision pro yep. yeah so for all mankind is a uh is is a, a, a entry into a genre that i have been consistently disappointed with forever which is alternate history yeah alternate history is a really cool concept for a genre of speculative fiction where you know history is different and then you kind of deal like something different happened in the past and you see what uh that world looks like the biggest show probably being uh the man in the high castle the problem with it is that the genre is i think annoying because it's filled with people who have cool concepts for settings but then forget that yeah stories have to happen in settings okay uh like they wanted to make a wikipedia article or like a DD setting book but they had to then make a novel and so like uh one mm. of the most heinous ones is harry turtle dove who has this series where aliens invade during world war ii and it has something like 40 pov characters and so the first like 150 pages happen and literally nothing's happened yet because he's too busy mm. introducing like two dozen characters characters into the into this thing yeah because he needs to see the he needs to have the setting that he wants to actually talk about be seen from all these different angles 
I feel like Bright is an example of this in a in a fantasy uh, instead of sci-fi thing. You remember Bright when that was a big that thing? That was that like Will Smith cop movie with like orcs and stuff. Yeah, it was like what if it's like what if the real world and fantasy world merged over. Lindsay Ellis made a video about it like ages ago and was like, this doesn't work for like historical fiction or like alternate history fiction because there are so many different places, like real life places like LA or whatever that is like, okay, but the history of why LA is called LA also meant that that history needed to happen and like all these references that they make and it's like, how could all of this happen and also there's fantasy creatures yeah. so it's like nothing else happened. There's there's a bit of like, this is me kind of like toppling the Holy Grail here, but like it's kind of why I don't really like the X-Men as a stand-in for discrimination because it was always a stand-in for like racism but like mm-hmm. um if if people based on their skin color had like apocalyptic levels of superpowers <laughs> you might mm-hmm. be like like if people if there were people like like one in ten million people were born with like the ability to shoot lasers out of their eyes that could knock down buildings i uh-huh, might also uh-huh. be on on board for some registration <laughs> but and we can't get into this because we haven't even started the real podcast yeah. yet. But Cyclops doesn't want to shoot lasers out of his eyeballs. That's a disability. Sure. It's, he doesn't, he's not actually trying to do anything harmful. That is That's true. Just I, I 100% something. understand. But, but if you can do that, it might behoove people to be aware of that. <laughs> like, uh, if like say, oh no, my glasses broke. Like for most people, that's like, okay, uh, here, here's your glasses. I can't drive home because yeah. <laughs> my vision isn't good enough. But if it's if you're if you're Scott Scott if, if you're me if you're Scott uh, I can't remember what his last name is Scott Summers Scott Summers uh, that means that like if you open your eyes you will destroy an entire city block and I think I, I don't know there's there's a bit there's there's a lot to the anyways this is tangents within tangents um I know so, we are so far off track. yeah but for all mankind is a show where in 1969 uh, Apollo 11 gets scooped by the Soviet Union that is like the the inciting history historical difference. So the Soviet Union beats America to the moon and mm-hmm. Richard Nixon, not to be one upped by the commies, decides mm-hmm. to make a uh, like he declares that America is going to have the first moon base. Mm. And the show takes place over multiple decades with differing degrees of how good they are at making up people to like, you know, people who are in their 40s who are now playing people in their 70s. But mm-hmm. like basically the space race continues after 1969 and gets even more intense and like by the most recent season they're like it's like the it's like 2003 and they're on mars Mm. and uh and there's like alternate history stuff going on throughout the entire show like different events happen things play out differently some of the similar events happen it's really good and it's the first time because like many alternate history stories are very much like there's there's it's always so lazy because it's always it's almost always like what if the nazis won world war ii or what if the confederates won the civil war and this was the first one i saw that was like hey what if things were better than the one that we have now like what if we had a good alternate history yeah and uh, yeah where like we figured out fusion in like the 1990s and like all of the like arabian oil tycoons are like struggling to stay afloat because they the whole thing that's keeping their oppressive of regimes afloat isn't working anymore <laughs> and like all that Get kind fucked. of stuff like it's and, and, and you know communism is still a viable uh uh political movement in the 2000s you know positive good things <laughs> yeah yeah um, 
it does fall it does fall a little bit for like soviets like russia bad which i think like like russia bad soviets are bad they're unequivocally bad because they're bad because communists and communists are bad it is a tv it is a tv show, show made in Amer- by American. a trillion dollar company yeah <laughs> so but um besides that though like it's like one of the best shows for like you know having a sort of hopeful vision of humanity and the sort of general theme that runs through every season is that when we fall down to our like small bickering nationalisms or our like you know uh, our personal greed we uh we fall short and when we do great things that are designed for like the benefit of all humankind it's when we like rise to those occasions yeah when we like rise to the occasion and do things for the betterment of everybody we can do great things and that's like the sort of theme that runs the show and it's amazing and if you haven't watched it yet you just do it do it now (laughs) you sign up for apple tv so you could watch ted lasso ted lasso's done it's done now Mm -hmm. you still have a few months until severance season two severance comes out that's we're hanging on for severance i think severance got pushed back quite a bit because of the strike but, another um, great sh- that one is definitely more anti-capitalist uh which i do enjoy yeah. but uh but 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 one of the things this is like the hopefully like i'm not i don't want to spoil too much of the show but this is something that kind of happens in like the first handful of episodes and like the sort of political okay. fallout of losing the space race but uh one of the things that happens that is one of the greatest unacknowledged or one of like the the, the the things that should have happened in history but never did okay uh happens surrounding uh a person that is going to be the main focus of this episode today so actually there is a point to this whole conversation there's a point we're like 15 16 minutes in and there is a point to us talking about yeah so this is a podcast called it's probably not aliens Woo! where we talk did it yeah where we talk about ancient astronaut theory ancient aliens pseudo history pseudo archaeology pseudoscience uh conspiracy theories all with sort of a sci-fi bent yes my name is Scott Nicewander. I know nothing. I haven't even watched For All Mankind. I'm waiting for All Womankind to come out because I am an ally. <laughs> wow. Unlike Tristan, who clearly isn't. Uh, the only thing that I know is that I'm going to push back against the mutant thing again because think think about how many people have illnesses that get discriminated against in jobs and th- in careers and things like that because they have to tell people that they have certain illnesses and side Cyclops has a, a disability that would prevent him from getting jobs. There's just discrimination all over, Tristan. I understand them wanting to hide it is all I'm saying. My name is Tristan Johnson, and I acknowledge that uh, if you can kill somebody by making skin-on-skin contact with them, that, that goes outside the normal bounds of disability. <laughs> I just wear gloves then. Uh... Either way, this is a pod. So so we are sort of uh, three episodes deep into Ancient Aliens and the or Aliens and the Third Reich, this absolutely bomb episode of ancient aliens that has so much uh shit in it the main thing that we're going to be doing today though and i think this is going to have to become more the norm as we go through this episode is that so like the this episode has a much more clear thing it's trying to say and then it spins off in a bunch of directions based on like 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 i'll start with this like basically we've already established in the last couple episodes that ancient aliens is saying that 
the Nazis had alien technology or that they just had super technology. And because that's established, we then go into various different aspects of Nazi science and such and be like, and that's how you know that like aliens were involved with this. So like last week we did their Adam Waffen program. The week before we did Victor uh, Schauberger's Schauberger. uh, anti-gravity thing. One of the other claims that they make is that uh, the the breakthrough V1 and V2 rocket program what? Uh, were far ahead of their time and uh-huh. that they were reverse engineering crashed alien spacecraft when they developed the first cruise missile and the first ballistic missile. Oh, yeah. Shocking. So, and that uh, when Operation Paperclip happened, that was the Americans taking all of the ancient alien technology that the Germans had and bringing it to Area 51 so that they could do their own sort of research on it. It's just a quick one there. Yeah. So today we're talking, though, specifically about the V1 and V2 rockets. That's the that's the general gist of what happened. And I feel like the next few episodes is going to be or a lot of these episodes are going to be like because we know that the Nazis were reverse engineering alien tech or they just had sci fi super right. tech. Therefore, this and we'll kind no, of like the word no is in heavy quotes. Yes, yeah, exactly. So the the general claim today is that the V1 and V2 rocket programs represented technological advancements that were influenced by extraterrestrial technology. That's like the the gist. That's it. So let's talk a little bit about this stuff. Another another one there. Yes. The V1 and V2 rockets developed by Nazi Germany during World War II were part of a long-range artillery program known as the Vergeltungswaffen, or retaliatory weapons. Uh, We'll get more into the V1 and V2 rocketry programs, but uh, they were huge technological advances that increased the maximum range of what you could do. If you think about this before this, uh, the most that you could do was fire artillery shells, which Mm. is just firing a, a shell out of a cannon and having it explode. The V1 was the first cruise missile, which is a propelled rocket that had a missile on board mm. and the v2 rocket increased the uh the range and also developed a guidance system so it was the first missile that you could actually adjust its trajectory while flying oh that's kind of cool yeah and one of the key figures for developing the v2 rocket was a physicist slash scientist named Werner von braun i've heard this name before yeah he's gonna be he's he's our main character today he's the main character of twitter today yeah He's being dead, but for rockets. Gosh, that's old. <laughs> what sucks is that like one of my favorite songs was made by Bean Dad, and I feel bad every time I listen to it. Stop listening to it. But it's so good. <laughs> nope, it's done. It's ruined by beans. Okay. But this is like not a really good one to go on. Like the, the general bit that you can say about this, and this is like the this is what makes the debunking part of this video not or this episode not really great, is that the the, the point is that there's no evidence to show this, and it it it's like it's very obvious that this shit was just made up. Like like that that mm-hmm. it's a lie. It's a lie. It's untrue. We have a it's pretty just a lie. <laughs> We have pretty good evidence to show exactly how the V2 rocket program, the V1 rocket program worked. And we know very well that it was done by human engineers because we have like all of the evidence and we have people who literally worked on these programs who described everything they did. Pretty strong evidence then. Yeah, the biggest one being is that after World War II, the Americans took a whole bunch of that technology and just brought it back to, to use it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that if they had gotten super like sci-fi weapons, they would have used them to do to do to do Soviet stuff. Yeah. The main thing to talk about, though, with the V1 and V2 rockets is that they were the reason they were so impressive and so fast is because they were the result of intense research and development by German scientists and engineers. And they were also built by forced labor under inhumane conditions. Oh, no. Yeah. So like that's kind of could have seen that coming. Mm hmm. 
So again, this plays into the bigger idea that Nazi Germany had access to alien technology, which is again, it's, it's an unfact. It's, it, it, there's no evidence that it actually of, happened. It is kind of fitting that a lot of stuff that ancient aliens and ancient astronaut theory says is like alien technology or like was made by aliens or something is actually just slaves. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just slave labor. How did they do it? How did they move the big rocks? How did they build the pyramids? How did they make the rockets? It's just slave labor, bud. That's it. I'm actually reading this really great book right now called Humankind uh, that talks a lot about how things like the Moai statues and like a lot of these like Gobekli Tepe and stuff like that were probably mm -hmm. made because uh, before farming, people had so much free time that moving big rocks was just sort of like a thing that you could do to structure your day, like a kind of just a thing to keep you busy because you had so much free time to just chill because humans are designed to forage for a little bit and then chill for most of the day. Yeah. Just, I, hey, there's a rock over here. You want to move it over there? Yeah, I got nothing going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, like if you have like humans are, are have like a sort of biological need to create things. And so if we're just like hanging around doing nothing, then we start like, hey, what if I, I made this rock look like a face? Well, let's stand it up. All right. And then like you can see how that accelerates. Oh, yeah. We don't have that anymore. Everyone's locked into their Apple Vision Pros. Yeah. On their skateboard. <laughs> on their skateboard at McDonald's. Okay. I will say they're, if they're, they're just doing it for clout or whatever, I always just am reminded that I'm like, Casey Neistat, just. You don't have to say any more than that. I'm with you immediately. <laughs> <laughs> He's an extremely exhausting human being. Yeah. He's he is the perfect sign that being rich, like there's this whole like, you know, there's this sort of liberal fantasy that rich people are rich because they're the most innovative and intelligent and most like perfect people. Yeah, they they got through the meritocracy. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah Casey yeah. Neistat is a repudiation of that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that from the moment he made an entire video talking about how much he loved the Juicero. Oh my God. I just want to know how much money he lost on NFTs. Cause it's a lot. I don't know how much it is, but I know it's a lot. I mean, you still had enough to buy a $3,500 headset. So must be doing okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so the thing about this whole idea of Nazis having UFOs got popularized through a bunch of books and documentaries like Third Reich, Hitler's UFOs and the Nazis' most powerful weapon or Saucers Whoa. of Fear, Nazi UFOs, Alien Abduction, Project Bluebeam, which we definitely need to make a video about some, or an episode about at some point, or sure. high-tech high horrors from the X-Files of Saucerian Press. What a book title. What a book title. The Nazi UFOs, where are they now? Good question. Good question. No, <laughs> no way. <laughs> Good. Uh, you're, you're on the right track. Yeah. Keep following. Keep following that thought. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> In Search of Aliens, World War II, time travel warfare. Oh, they couldn't gosh. time travel to realize that fascism is a loser ideology, but okay. <laughs> Unidentified fascist objects, which admittedly, great title for an article. Holy shit, what a good title. <laughs> but that is actually, uh, Unidentified Fascist Objects is the article that uh, a lot of this research came from because it is debunking all of this stuff. But um, it is a sort of study of the great. actual like connection between Holocaust deniers and the Nazi a UFO conspiracy. So mm. um, because it talks about people like Ernst Zundel, who was a prolific Holocaust denier who also got into UFO culture and was one of the propagators of the ideas of Nazi UFOs. Uh, I mean, it's, it's something you've said a lot before on this podcast is like, it's really easy to go from one conspiracy and, and start believing in others. And I feel like this is a really good example of this sort of Venn diagram sort of crossing over. Yeah, it's weird how it keeps happening. Anyways, the other the other 
other sort of side, the ancient alien side, is that sometimes they also have a different sort of spin on it that they didn't get it from a UFO, but they got it by like sending archaeologists to like sites in India and stuff like that. They, they got the Vimana tech, they got the the, uh. the the nuclear tech from like they kind of did that kind of thing. The Nazi UFOs narrative is also built in the fact that the Nazis did have an interest in the occult and that they had these Wunderwaffen or miracle weapons, which was kind of like part moonshot program to try and turn around their fates as they were losing World War II, but also part mm. propaganda effort because kind of get into this later, but fascists sort of have a actually, no, it's a thing I, I'm getting into in my next YouTube video, but fascists have always had sort of a, a weird fetishization of technology, which oh, explains no. why so many of them now have uh, pictures of apes on their Twitter profile pictures. Oh, I see. I see. So like the Nazis did have a bunch of stuff that had to do with, uh, with like the fetishizing this technology and thinking that they could, you know, win the war that was based around, you know, just pumping out enough stuff like like World War Two was very yeah. much like how can you get your economy to pump out more tanks, bullets, uh, guns, trucks, people who are trained? How than do you the, get on that the grind enemy? set? Yeah, that you, World War Two was about getting on that grind set, getting on that, getting on the mer- the the killing other people grind set. Yeah, World War Two was very much like because the technologies were you know as soon as you invented something, your enemy would blow up one of them and then reverse engineer it, and they would have like you know counters pretty fast so world war ii very much became how can you like mobilize your entire economy to out economy the other side's economy that's right hustle yeah and it turns out to win that you just have to have a fully um full command economy under a soviet stalinist uh economic order seems to be the most efficient because you can just you gotta attend a long weekend gary v conference and you'll be inspired. Joseph Stalin, big fan of Gary V, was uh, put Huge his entire economy on the hustle v grind set. Was like hustle grind set. I wake up. I have I have three weeks in the span of one week. Think about that. Think about that. All five right? year, his five year plans were his five year plans and his like insane quotas. It was all just trying to get the Soviet Union on that hustle grind set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hey, this is Joey S here. Uh, just trying to motivate you all to. You're going to NFT a house? That was the weirdest thing I've ever heard Gary V say. I still don't understand it to this day. He was Gary like. Gary V doesn't understand it. He was like, you get a house, NFT it. And then in this many years, I'm like, what do you mean? What does that mean, Gary? <laughs> Wait, we're, real, we're going for we're going for a very specific kind of person today. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Gary V is one of those people that um I, I put them on a list of there's a small list of people I have that involves people like uh like Matt Iglesias, where I will say there is nobody on earth who is as smart as these people think they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So yeah, this sort of like the the Wunderwaffe program was this idea that yes. the uh that we would just they would just solve World War II change through technology and not through economics. Mostly because Germany, as we kind of established in the show uh, last episode. The whole idea about World War II is that Germany was on the economic back foot compared to countries like the Soviet Union and the Allies, who the Allies all had massive colonial empires, and the Soviet Union had hundreds of millions of people and just like had people. Um, yeah. And had and and also and like you know, this is one that like uh Cold War propaganda doesn't really want to give a lot of credit to, but they had an economy where it was fully run by the government. So like if they needed to be like, hey, all of those things that made cans for food, they all need to be turned into tank factories and that's going to happen right now. Yeah. Or like if the Germans are going to take our factory, we're going to tear it down brick by brick, put it onto trains, send it to Siberia, rebuild the factory brick by brick. And then like, like the Soviet, the 
Soviets had just like this economy where they could just they could do anything because it was they all could just do whatever they needed to do. Yeah. And that that sort of uh, also turned the war around for them pretty, pretty impressively. I mean, it was also a brutal dictatorship that um, the people who had to do all the work to make that stuff happen. Uh, it was terrible. And and uh, the working oh, conditions yeah. were, we're not, awful. Let's not sugarcoat no it. As Stalin if stand was... here. <laughs> no, 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 no. Stalin, Stalin's uh, economic planning was good for one specific thing, which was con- entirely converting the economy for a single purpose. And if that single purpose is defeating fascists, then like it's not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> the thing, though, is that the Wunderwaffe program was like, we're just going to invent cool, crazy things. Let's go. Yeah, despite the, f- the effectiveness of these weapons, propaganda talked about them being these huge, outstanding, groundbreaking technologies that were going to turn the t- tide of the war any day now, trying to trying to like kind of boost morale in Germany during the end of the war. Okay. But a lot of these were impractical or resource intensive or just like too late to actually make a difference. It's like CES, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's, you've got all these companies coming out being like, this is the new technology we've got in the future. And it's like really wild stuff that's either like trickery and doesn't actually work the way it is, or it's like way too expensive that no one could ever actually buy it. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel like it is like it is CES. That's not too far off, actually. So the, but the thing is, though, if you are, say, uh, a person who maybe is enticed by Nazi ideas after World War II, a, a neo-Nazi, if you will. Huh, that's a good, did you just coin that one? Yeah. That's pretty good. If you, if you think that, and then you see all this propaganda from the war, then you might be inclined to think that there's more to it than this. And that's sort of like, in my mind, I think that is like the origin of a lot of these, like, you know, Nazis had super weapons type thinking. Uh, I just want to give you a couple ideas, a couple, I wrote, I wrote down a few examples of Please. these kinds of Wunderwaffen programs. So first was the Schwerer Gustav, the heavy Gustav, an 800 millimeter gun that you would put on a train. Uh, so this is the largest artillery piece that had ever been used in warfare. Just a massive gun that required an That's entire big. logistics effort to just assemble it and move it. But it was a artillery gun so big that you had to mount it on a train. <laughs> bigger gun. That's how you win war. Bigger gun. Yeah. Yeah. The other one would be the V3 cannon, otherwise known as the Vakdrunkpumpa, uh, which was this uh-huh. multi-stage, super long-range cannon. This is the one we talked about that used coordinated explosions to fire shells across the English Channel to land them into, oh, uh, yeah. into uh, London. They would they were going to build these in the Pas de Calais region, but they never actually got one up and running. Mm-hmm. They had the Kumlauf, which was this barrel attachment for the, the Sturmgewehr uh, 44 assault rifle that would allow it to shoot around corners. Whoa. Yeah, they built one of these, but it had an extremely short barrel life and was just completely impractical for using it in a lot of things. Mm. Uh which means that, yeah, firing it a few times, it would wear itself out. They then invented the, the Panhandrum, uh, which was this rocket-propelled explosive wheel that would go over, like, like sort of, there's, like, one of the other sort of defensive technologies were, like, people building, like, like concrete walls. So this would be, like, a, a, a rocket-propelled wheel that would, like, roll over the walls and explode. This is, like, Junkrat's tire? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> From Overwatch? Basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's that's exactly, yeah. That's funny. Somebody needs to investigate Junkrat. Um, yeah, actually, I have some follow-up questions for Junkrat. The, the problem is that it was, like Junkrat, unreliable and uncontrollable. <laughs> 
And that's why friends don't let friends play Junkrat. Anyways, that's right. Uh, there was also the the Triflugeljager, Jager, uh, which was a vertical was an attempt to make a vertical takeoff and landing interceptor with rotating wings. Which, as we already know about vertical taking off and landing interceptors, it's hard to wings. do. Yeah. <laughs> they're still working on that one. No, no, we can't. We can't. We can't Osprey post anymore. We, can't we have done do too much damage. Anymore. We get, all we can say is it's just hard to do. It's hard to I do. I feel like that's fair. The to Osprey say. does exist. Its safety record is something. It, Tristan, its safety stop. record is. <laughs> there was also the Rushdal X4, which was a wire-guided air-to-air missile. So uh, it was a an air-to-air missile, like a missile that would fire from a plane to hit other planes. Oh, but it was uh, this one might have actually worked, but it began production in 1945 and. Um, the Germans didn't last oh, long enough for it to come into full production. Yeah, little, yeah, a little late on that one. There was the Panzer Eight Mouse, which was a super heavy tank. This is the one where they were trying to make tanks out of naval parts. Too heavy and impractical for actual combat. They made two prototypes that never actually saw combat. Mm-hmm. There was the ME-163 Comet, which was a rocket-powered interceptor. But so uh, you want to you want to know something that sounds absolutely insane? So the ME-163 Comet. Yes, this was an attempt to build a rocket plane. A <laughs> rocket plane. So they were like, let's take this V2 rocket technology and apply it to airplane. Let's go. You'll be surprised to know that the comet was, quote, difficult to fly and also dangerous to its own pilots due to volatile fuel. Maybe strapping people onto a missile, not viable. Well, I guess that's basically what rockets are today, but that's rockets. Yeah. Then there was the ME-262 Schwalbe, which was the world's first jet uh, aircraft, but it had a lot of delays and its deployment came out too late and it was too unreliable to actually work in the field, so it didn't actually do very well. Fair enough. Uh, all of these, lots of German weapons productions, especially ones on the Wunderwaffe program, also relied heavily, again, I'm going to reply on forced slave labor, because a lot of this technological adv- advancements happened on the exploitation of the suffering of countless individuals. Yep, 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 yep. The other part that also brings people into this is the uh, idea that Nazis were into the occult, which some segments of the Nazi party actually did have an interest in with like people like Heimlich Hindler, who had like sort of uh-huh. this weird interest in like Germanic myths. The thing though, is that this has been one of the most overstated things and has been really played with in pop culture with everything from, uh, you know, Captain America to, uh, to Hellboy to like, yeah, I was thinking Hellboy. It's become such a big thing in pop culture that, um, it's been, but it's been like grotesquely overstated. And the idea that like these sort of myths that some high ranking Nazi officials had like a side interest in that it had any role in like actual decision making or like Nazi ideology is not very strong. Just a little too fabricated. Yeah. It's just just a nice story that people say. I guess not really a nice story. It's one of those it's one of those things that um, that we can use to otherize or to sort of uh, to talk about the Nazis as if they had some sort of like evil or alien uh, thought process to distance the fact that their beliefs were extreme versions of ones that are still prevalent today you know that their 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 main ideology was nationalism racism and the sort of drive to create colonial spaces which were all things that western countries also did the germans just did it harder so we have to sort of say like yeah yeah but also there was this guy that was really obsessed with these like ridiculous myths and yeah things like that and we don't do that part yeah and that like they weren't christian they were into like ancient teutonic myths 
And right. we'll just not talk about how quiet the Pope was and how much he might have known mm. about the Holocaust and didn't say mm-hmm. or do anything about it. I'm learning a lot about popes this week for a video that I'm doing. Interesting. We'll get into that. We'll get into that at the end when I promote my next video. Sweet. So that's the other thing. A lot of times also that we found that there's a lot of like, you know, images that come out from the Nazi regime are like photoshopped or fictional stories like that came out like way later. Like a lot of books that came out in the 90s when like UFO, the UFO renaissance happened through like the X-Files. Of course. That, uh, that, and you know, if there's two things that people are fascinated by, it's UFOs and Nazis. So obviously someone was going to slap the two together to make a quick buck off of some books. Peanut butter and chocolate, put it together. They're better together. Mm -hmm. So that's like, that's basically like putting to rest the idea that the V1 and V2 rockets were supernatural technology. But I do have, I do want to talk about the actual V1 and V2 rocket program. I would love to learn about real history on this show. I feel like we don't do that enough. We only do it once a week and it's that it's time again. So I would love to learn about real, the real history of these things. If you could. Well, first. Yeah. Product. Mm, yeah. Or service. Either one. Good product. Yummy, tasty, yeah, delicious. I ate it. It's, sign up for uh, micro-modal underwear that you can eat. Uh, yum, ke- yum, 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 keto, yum. Keto underwear. Sign up for keto underwear. Sign up to have a fresh subscription keto, of keto underwear, underwear delivered to your door or email. Four keto underwear boxes come to your, uh, four meals. Come to your keto, email. Come to your email every <laughs> come day. Come to your email every day. That's our new product or service. And also it's a mattress. You can sleep on it. That's great. Okay, rockets. Rockets. Everyone loves them. They do all sorts of cool things. And you know what? Uh, the idea that the V1 and V2 rocket programs were like the invention of them is actually a bit of a misnomer because they have been around for what? a long Long ass time, but the but V one has no, the number one in its name. It's got to be the first one. Well, uh, it turns out that rockets actually, like all technology, evolve in a context. You know how I feel about context. Yeah, I have a T-shirt that that explains it. Yeah, love it. Can't get enough. So the first rockets that I could find actually being used are from the 10th century, uh, which would be so the that's 1100s. a little earlier than World War II. Yeah. So how did that work? So the first rockets or the first things that we could call rockets were found in the Song Dynasty period in China. And what they would do is they would attach like propulsion systems onto arrows. Make them fly farther. Yeah, basically. Uh, although there's solid documentary evidence show it like the, the evidence of rockets existing doesn't show up until the 13th century. But like writings in the 13th century say that in the 10th century they were using. So there might be a bit of like a mythological uh. thing going on. But uh, sometime in the 10th to 13th century, they were doing they were in they were using rockets as like a way to accelerate arrows in China. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Further, faster, harder, explodier. We need some French robots here to turn that into a song. Yeah. <laughs> Further, oh, no. faster. They broke harder, up, didn't better, they? Better, stronger. I, yeah, I, a while back, I feel. Yeah. But we can get them back together for this one. So Europe didn't seem to find the rocket until the 16th century when a Austrian by the name of Konrad Huss wrote a treatise on rocketry, including ideas for crude rockets. Yeah. All right. Rockets that mm, are a little blue collar. Mm, they'll say they'll, they'll say what they're thinking. 
thinking. Yeah. But you imagine like, man, I want like, what would you even call this? Like, like, uh, enlightenment punk of like, uh, a, a, like <laughs> yeah. a thing where like Austrians figured out how to make like rockets and go to space in like the, uh, the, 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 the like 1600s. That would be fucking, that would fucking rule. Or the, Absolutely the, sorry, the, wild. The, the 1500s. Yeah. Uh, another example in Europe would be in the 17th century in, for the history nerd, one of our favorite weird countries that we doesn't exist anymore, which was the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Oh, yeah. first I'm hearing of this. If you are a nerd, especially a paradox interactive nerd, uh, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth is like a bit of a meme. Uh, but the Polish Lithuanian uh, general from there named, and I apologize for this extremely Polish name that I'm going to read, Kazimierz Semenovich, who published a book called The Complete Art of Artillery, which also had a bunch of stuff in it that increased uh, an advanced rocket tech. Oh, you can't spell artillery without art. Or ill, because it's sick, dude. It's ill. This artillery is sick. This is art and it's ill. Yeah, it is. It's the most 90s thing ever. (laughs) The principle behind rockets was outlined in something called the rocket equation, which was pioneered by a Russian uh, scientist by the name of Konstantin Sivlovsky. Sivlovsky? Sivlovsky. That's it. Uh, That's it. Who published the equation in 1903, which basically was the beginning of modern rocket science. The sort of physics that you need to understand the relationship between mass, speed, and the speed of what is basically how a rocket works, which is that it's about gas being shot at high pressure out of the back of an object to give Mm -hmm. it thrust. Do you think it was... Do you think that this was all created because our boy Constantine, someone was like, how do you think this works? And he goes, I don't know. I'm no rocket scientist, but I could be. This guy's the ultimate rocket scientist because he basically invented rocket science. He is. He is the one. He met. He met the first brain surgeon and was like, that guy, that guy thinks he's so smart. I'm going to invent something. I could also be a smart person, an analog for a smart person. Yeah. There's a really great uh, skit from Mitchell and Webb where two people like they're at a party and there's two like this guy's like showing off that he is a uh, a brain surgeon and like shows how he's smarter than everyone else. And then he runs into another guy at the party who is a rocket scientist. <laughs> and the two of them sort of like try to out asshole each other about like browbeating about how smart they are. It's a great skit. It's pretty good. But basically like this, ro- the, this stuff is all about like, like Konstantin Slavkovsky's work was about like the math about how how much mass and speed and uh, and propellant you would need to like, like if you needed to get a rocket this many feet in the air that weighed, that sent this much of a payload up, you would need this much fuel coming out at this much speed. And like that sort of math is still key to like how we get things to space today, right? Because that's why things cost like $10,000 a kilogram to get into space because to send one yeah. kilogram of mass into space, you need like X amount of kilograms of fuel to shoot the rocket into space with it on it. And then that fuel needs to make up for its own weight and like- yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly it's like yeah. it just it just keeps adding on to itself yeah that's Ugh. that's why like um if you ever hear about like in science fiction when people talk about things like space elevators or even like some thoughts about like making a giant gauss cannon that would use magnets to fire things use into space magnets yeah the whole concept so we don't is, have to use fuel yeah because this is the number one thing stopping us from going into space and going to space all the time is that the gravity well is uh prohibitively hard to to do things with so yeah 
that's that's the big part. Then the first like you know uh, big or one of the biggest uh, successful flights with a liquid propelled rocket came in only in the 20th century with a guy named uh, Robert Goddard who is an American. Wait, from Jimmy Neutron? Maybe that's probably where the Jimmy Neutron got the name. Goddard. Bark, bark. That's what he says. Did this one also just bark? Was this one a dog as well? Could be. Would a, Jimmy Neutron wouldn't name a dog after a person now, would he? No. Maybe. Jimmy Neutron's no. one of those things that is like, it separates me from like a very, like there's a cutoff because Jimmy Neutron was one of like the first cartoons that was a little bit too young <sighs> for me. I was worried when I said it that you wouldn't know what I was talking. About. I know of Jimmy Neutron. I just know that Jimmy Neutron was like, that's what like the, the sort of 10 and 12 year olds were watching when I was like 13, 14, you know? Gotcha. Just like how, like, I think the same thing, like there's also the stuff that, you know, like the older kids were watching that were a little bit too old for you. Like for me, it was like mm. the OG Transformers and Ninja Turtles. Mm. And mine was like, you know, yeah. Beast Wars and um, some weird YTV show where uh, really poorly 3D animated planets that represented the different elements fought each other over cool. a death planet that ate other planets. It was a good show. I don't remember anything about it. I mean, it was probably an awful show because it was made for like eight year old boys, but uh, who and, and trying to sell toys. But, you know, it was trying to sell. if I remember correctly, it was trying to sell basically Polly Pocket. But for but this one's for the boys. This one's for the boys. Yeah. This one's Wally Wallet. <laughs> yeah. And this is a planet that eats other planets. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember because it, it was a planet that ate other planets, but the planet eater like literally had like a big like 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 a claw, like from like a claw machine that would come out and grab the planet and take it inside to eat it oh my god you know, it was ridiculous it was definitely like a toy commercial first and an attempt all at a cartoons show. are toy commercials first especially in the 80s and 90s i think all right back to goddard okay so um so yeah goddard uh made a liquid uh, a few a fuel out of liquid oxygen and gasoline which is honestly pretty interesting because that's not too far off from what rocket fuel is today like the rocket fuel that oh. goes into the rockets that go into space today is primarily liquid oxygen and kerosene you ever notice that like when you see a rocket going off that are just tons of like mist and steam on the yeah. fuel tanks. It's because they're it's they're full of liquid oxygen, which is extremely cold. Oh, I thought it was just to make it look cool. I mean, it does that too. But like, that's the reason why that stuff is like those fuel tanks are freezing because to have oxygen be cold enough to be liquid is a very low temperature. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that is like the state of what rocketry was when we get into World War II. And during World War II, Germany then tried to use rockets to build flying bombs was basically their idea. They started with the V-1, which was called the Flying Bomb, which was developed at uh, Premenud uh, Army Research Base in 1939 and was the first operational cruise missile. It used a pulse jet engine, which gave it this distinctive buzzing sound. So sometimes it got nicknames uh, among the allies with like the buzz bomb. Ooh, buzz bomb. Mm-hmm. Do you have buzz balls up in Canada? No, no, they're like they're like spherical pop bottles or something like that, right? Or no, they're they're full. They're booze, right? They're full of alcohol. Okay, Absolutely. yeah, I think I've seen them. They in- will. F- fuck you up sometimes when i go to because my my wife is an american immigrant and sometimes when we go to her family for christmas i think i see them in the liquor store Mm, yeah also just liquor stores are an interesting phenomenon because here they're all run by the government so like they're all like oh yeah pristine clean unionized fancy places and like liquor stores there are kind of sketchy sometimes sometimes depends on where you go indiana well there you go (laughs) Uh, (laughs) the v1 was about 25 feet long uh had a wingspan about 17 
17 feet long and it carried a 850 kilogram or 1,870 pound uh, warhead. And they would okay. they would launch them off of a ramp using a steam catapult uh, or a modified Henkel Hay 111 aircraft. And its guidance system used a gyroscope, which is one of the coolest inventions ever, and uh, had an autopilot that uh, tried to keep it at a predetermined altitude and speed with a range of about 240 kilometers, but it got increased to 400 kilometers later. So you can imagine in war before this, all you had yeah. was what you could fire out of an artillery shell. Now that can still go very far. And if you knew the math on how to angle things correctly, you yeah. can still get pretty far. But being able to yeah. fire a missile that can go 240 kilometers was insane. Well, that's what I imagine. That's why they built the big gun, the big rail gun. Yeah, that was them that attempting to, assault, to, to do it without having to make expensive rockets, basically, right? Yeah. yeah. Big gun. Big gun. Bigger, big gun shoot far. Big gun, I mean, big gun does shoot far. That is, that's the, that's, the, that's the Gauss thing to get things into spaces, basically. <laughs> yeah, big guns shoot real far. If you think about it, the Gauss gun is basically them trying to do the exact same thing the Nazis did when they were trying to solve the same problem. The rockets are too expensive. <laughs> Let's just make a big gun that shoots things instead. Shoot people into space, yeah. Well, the, the thing with the Gauss guns is that the one thing you wouldn't be able to do is send people into space because the G-forces mm. involved would basically turn them into silly putty. <laughs> Stop me. Yeah. I dare you. You would just be turned into paste. G-forces are no joke. That's not, that's another limitation is that human beings are very sensitive to G forces and, uh, you can't oh, really yeah. go too fast into space or else you will crush everybody inside the V Darn. the V one rocket was significant because it was the first use of a guided missile in warfare. It was also relatively inexpensive and quick to produce. It was about the cost of a small car. Okay. And it was the beginning of modern missile technology, which I think you could, I, I don't have to go. I think it goes without saying today that missiles play a pretty large role in modern warfare. Yeah. Uh, the first successful V-1 flight took place on 1942 and was put in production in 1943 and primarily was used to target London and parts of Britain. Uh, the first attack happened on June 13th, 1944, but during the war, approximately 9,251 of these V-1s were fired, 2,515 reached London and killed about 6,184 civilians with about 1,700 or sorry, 17,981 injuries. So this was quite a brutal uh technology just when you say 9000 were fired and 2500 reached london were they all aimed at london and like 7000 of them just didn't quite make it there i think that might be correct wow i mean still devastating the amount of uh civilian deaths and injuries but also that's 7000 missiles that just crashed in the water are just crashed in the water i guess or they just like you know landed somewhere outside of london that's also true there's like a whole thing in europe where they there have to like, shut countries. down they have to shut down da- well there's other parts of britain too um yeah a lot of people in london don't know that but it, it's true <laughs> but like fairly often you'll see a news story where like somebody's like digging in their yard and they accidentally find an unexploded ordinance from one of the world wars and like they have to like bring in bomb disposal people to like remove it yeah uh so it's it happens a lot in belgium with world war one stuff but it um st- it happens in britain every so often too wow. the main things that stop the v1 is that uh uh, the Allies started building defenses against it. Uh, the V, uh, one of the, they would be fighter planes, anti-aircraft batteries, bar- barrage balloons, which I love the idea of barrage balloons so much, which would they if you, you've probably seen these and like, if you're like trying to make yeah. World War II Britain look really World War II-y, you'll see these big like balloons floating over the city and they're supposed to be like yeah. balloons that basically deflect bombs and rockets. Oh, just, like, like kind they of bounce, bounce off, off yeah. of them? Boom. 
That's funny. Yeah. And uh, the V-1 rocket program, yeah, uh, there's also, yeah, anti-aircraft guns would basically take down. That's the other part. Some of them wouldn't hit, like uh, 2,515 hit London, but also many of them either missed or were shot down shot with down. anti-aircraft guns or with uh, fighter jets. Bounced around with those balloons. Yeah. But basically the threat of V-1 rockets only ended when the Allies just overran all of the launch sites <laughs> near the end of the war. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah. So that meant that the Nazis also needed to look into the V-2 program, which also was called the A-4 program, which was the first operational liquid fuel rocket ballistic missile. All right. And this one was... The sequel. Yeah, this one's this is the, the sequel. Squeakle. This is the sequel. 14 meters long, uh, weighed 12,000 kilograms. Okay. Had uh, uh, 725 kilos of explosives or 1,600 pounds. It's guided, Big boy. Yeah, its guidance system was designed to shut off at a predetermined velocity to start a, f- uh, a parabolic free fall towards its target. Oh, clever. But it could fly up as high as 50 or 60 miles in the air and could get a speed as high as 3,400 miles per hour, Dang. which was a huge advancement for rocket technology and became a huge part of the technology that would lead to the rockets, the ones that we use to go to space. Space rockets. The ones that are not supposed to explode. Mm-hmm. Unless Elon Musk is making them. Even then, they're not supposed to explode. They just do a lot. They just do. Look, it was a control. They're controlled explosions, Tristan. It's supposed to happen on purpose. Yeah, he meant to do that. Mm-hmm. Elon needs more ketamine, everybody. Mm-hmm. He's in the deep K-hole right now. They produced about 6,000 of these and launched about 2,600 of them to cities like London, Paris, Lille, and Antwerp. They killed about 5,000 people, but these ones were way more expensive. And the other thing, too, is that they were harder to develop and build and were primarily built by prisoners at the Miltilbaudora concentration camp. And a lot of them, people died in the process of manufacturing it. So the main thing I want to get to is that... yes. After World War II, the United States and Soviet Union both captured V-2 rockets to reverse engineer them and figure out what was going on and laid the foundation for the space race that would come afterwards. The space race being uh, starting with the launch of the Soviet satellite Sputnik in 1957, which was then followed by Yuri Gagarin, the first man into space, also the Soviets, uh, first woman in all space, right. also. That's right, for all womankind. Just like uh, there's, there's a really funny uh, space race meme, if I can find it. Yeah, I found it here. First artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, Soviet Union. First animal in space, Laika, Soviet Union. First photographs of the far side of the moon, Luna 3, Soviet Union. First person in space, Yuri Gagarin, Soviet Union. First woman in space, Valentina Tereshkova, Soviet Union. First spacewalk, Alexei Leonov, Soviet Union. First spacecraft landing on the moon, Luna 9, Soviet Union. First person on the moon, Neil Armstrong, America. First spacecraft landing on another planet, Venus, Venera 7, Soviet Union. First space station, Salyut 1, Soviet Union. First space uh, spacecraft landing on Mars, Mars 3, Soviet Union. Winner of the space race, America. <laughs> we put a man on the moon, baby. What did Canada do? What did Canada do, Tristan? Nothing. Oh, you sat wow. by and you watched. There's literally a children's museum in London that I take my son to every so often that has an entire section where we get way too involved in our space contributions because we made the Canada arm that is like a, a, a robotic arm that is attached to the uh-huh. space shuttle and there's one attached to the ISS. And we are so ridiculously proud of it that it's on our money. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And also the next um, space launch, that one that's going to the moon, has a Canadian on its crew and and Canadians are losing their shit over the fact that there's going to be a Canadian on the moon. So there's got to be a Canadian on the moon. Yeah. The first person to say, hey, hey, do you think and I'm sorry if this is reductive. Do you think that the reason Canadians are losing their mind about 
the first Canadian on the moon is because we're itching to find out what poutine tastes like with moon cheese. Ooh, good take. That's a better answer than the fact that Canada is kind of a, what we like to call a middle power, but it's basically a a kind of not important lapdog of the US. And so whatever little contributions we can actually make to that are, that are of some value to the world, we will latch on to because we, we need this. Okay. Canadian, Canadian Mm -hmm. patriotism has so few things to hang on to that things like the Canada arm is all we have and like half of the comedians, but that's a different thing. You've got at least one Avril Lavigne. Yeah. So the thing though, is that the space race has revolutionized defense, commerce, even now tourism a little bit. So like now rockets are highly sophisticated. They can carry people and payloads into space. We're now looking into even reusable rockets when Elon doesn't blow them up. And space exploration has become a lot more sustainable and cost-effective, hopefully to a day where we'll have a whole new space age. But uh, I think that uh, if we're going to, because I want to get into the, 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 very complex person behind rocketry who has who connects the Nazi V2 program and the Apollo program. But I think that we are running a little over time. So part two, we haven't done a part two in a while. We're going to have to do a part two, but part two seems to be if this was about the rockets themselves, we need to learn about the, the man behind the rockets. Yes. Is that fair to say? Yep. So next week, For you, in like five minutes for us as we continue recording, we will talk about... Werner von Braun. Werner von Braun. And that that will be our connection to For All Mankind, I imagine. We're back. Full circle. Yeah. But first, if you like this show and you want to uh, get, you know, pump up the hype for the Von Braun episode, you can go on Twitter or Blue Sky to at Probs Not Aliens. We used to give away Blue Sky codes, but as of like yesterday now, the Blue Sky has it's been free, open for everyone. Come join us. Probs Not Aliens over there and on Twitter if you're using Twitter still. Either way, uh, Tristan, where else can people find you on the internet? What do you do? You're mentioning a video that you've got coming up. Yeah, uh, I have a YouTube channel called Step Back where I talk about basically why understanding the past is uh, important for getting things as they are like the world today. If you're listening to this on the day it came out, uh, my latest video is an investigation into how under the guise of uh, showing support for the people being uh, brutalized and and, uh, and and horribly repressed in Palestine, neo-Nazis have been using this horrifying humanitarian crisis to advance anti-Semitic conspiracies and stuff like that. And I kind of talk about media savviness and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Scott. Yeah. If you wanted to talk about how, if I wanted to learn about how She-Hulk broke the fourth wall before Deadpool, where would I pipe, pipe, comic misconceptions, pipe, pipe, nerdsing? Where would I go? (laughs) Uh, You call them pipes? That's interesting. Where would I go for Um, that? Yeah, you can. That's my YouTube channel, NerdSync, N-E-R-D-S-Y-N-C. Also on Nebula, if you're a Nebula subscriber over there. I make videos about comics and superheroes and cartoons. I have been teasing forever that I'm making a video about the weird world of cookbooks. I'm putting that one on pause just because it's taking me so long and I've switched gears right now to talk about the Harlem Globetrotters. What's up with the Harlem Globetrotters? Why are they in Scooby-Doo so much and other Hanna-Barbera cartoons? Futurama. Why are they in Futurama? (laughs) I will maybe briefly touch on Futurama, but specifically Scooby-Doo. Why are, what was up with the Harlem Globetrotters? It's 
fascinating. It's also why I mentioned earlier that I've been learning a lot about popes recently, because there are two honorary uh, Globe members, or Globetrotter members who are uh, popes. But that's my YouTube channel. And like I said, I'm on Nebula. Tristan's on Nebula. This podcast is on Nebula. You can get episodes early, nebula.tv slash probably not aliens. Mm -hmm. Very simple uh, place. And uh, you can leave reviews of this show on Apple Podcasts and feedback on Spotify. I woke up to an email today that said we had eight people write feedback on Spotify. I love getting those emails. I need to figure out how Thank to you for doing hack that. Your, your account so I can actually read all the comments yeah, on Spotify. Yeah, Tristan needs to read them. That would be I need also validation. Good. I'll show you the login. I'll show you the login. So thank you so much for doing that. And thank you for telling your friends about this show. It means a lot to us. And a very simple place to send people is probsnotaliens.com. Mm -hmm. That's the website where it's got links to everything, uh, where every place you can listen to the show. So that is it. And we'll see you in part two yep. for a bio episode. We love doing these about Werner von Braun. But until then, my name is Scott Nice One. I'm Tristan Johnson. And the truth is out there. Five, four, three, <gasps> two, <What>? one, <gasps> probably. Play it right here in the outro. Rocket countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Whoa. Now we're directed by Chris Nolan. Yeah. <laughs>